God, how we thank you for the Bible, and we do especially thank you for Romans chapter 8, all that is here that has been revealed by you. So much here of your work in our lives, in time, in the brief life we have on this planet, and in eternity to come. We ask you, Lord, to flood the eyes of our understanding with light, that we might be able to tap into and plumb the depths of the truth that is here that makes us free, that leads us into fellowship with you, that grants us victory in the Christian life, and ultimately brings that fullness of love and joy and peace to us that is ours as Christians, as your family. So Lord, bless this time that we have in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message comes from the very first verse in Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation. I might as well point out up front that in verse 1, where you read in your Bible, it says there is now no condemnation. If you have a King James or a New King James, you might see that it says in the King James, especially the old one, there is now no condemnation for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is a statement that is found actually if you look down in verse 4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit it is agreed by almost all scholars and has been that way for hundreds of years that second half of verse 1 does not belong in verse 1 it belongs in verse 4 where you find it and that some scribe who had good intentions put it into verse 1 I'm not going to belabor that point. It is common knowledge. Right here in my Bible, it says right down in the footnote, the NU text amidst the rest of this verse. And the reason I bring it up at all is because the no condemnation status we're going to talk about today has nothing to do with what we do and everything to do with what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. So the title, There is Now No Condemnation, that brings us into what has been called the Mount Everest of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, there's really nothing like it. All parts of Scripture are wonderful, but Romans chapter 8 stands alone in its wonder. William Newell has well written in his commentary, the eighth chapter of Romans is the instinctive goal of the Christian. Whether or not he can tell why, Whether or not he can give the great doctrinal facts that give him comfort here, he is nevertheless like a storm-tossed mariner who has arrived at his home port and cast anchor when he comes into Romans 8. There's something about Romans 8 that's home. It is the instinctive destination of the Christian heart from the moment you're born again. There is so much for us here. If you look at the book of Romans, it is the most amazing book. It's just, to me, the, my favorite book in the Bible. You start out in the book of Romans and in chapter 1. I'm just flipping your Bible to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul the Apostle introduces us to the idea of the power of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verses 16 and 17. It is the power of God unto salvation, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed 
from faith to faith on the basis of hearing a speech about Christ, the gospel message, you respond, and the faith in the person who caused them to share the gospel with you is then taken and used by God to touch you and bring about faith in your heart. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. It takes him the rest of the book to explain all of that, the power of God unto salvation. Then from there he begins to show how creation testifies so much of God that man is without excuse to say there is no God and to live as if there is no God. Going down into chapter 2, you see in your Bible that he begins to deal with all the sinfulness of man until he gets all the way down into the deep, dark parts of man's heart. And he goes on into chapter 3, dealing with the fallenness of man, the sin of man, the guilt of man, until he says, every mouth is stopped, all the world is guilty before God. The picture is so black. And then, in chapter 3, you find looking at... Where is it? Right around verse 20 and 21. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Then verse 21, after all this guilt and sin and inability before God, but now, verse 21, I love that, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there it is, the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. He goes on then to expound that salvation by grace through faith. And so chapter 4 looks at Abraham as the great example of faith, referencing David. You come into chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and what you have then is the result of our justification in Jesus Christ. The result. Chapter 5, if you look at the very beginning there. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we then have, here it is, peace with God. Before you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God, according to the Bible. So here is the blood of Christ, the finished work of Christ, bringing you the gift of justification, which takes you from enemy status before God to being actually a child of God. And thus you are at peace with the king. He then has nothing against you. All the demands of his holy law have been met in Jesus Christ. Now you are at peace with God himself. In chapter 6, we are brought into the whole idea of being in Christ. Our union with Jesus Christ. A very real, very spiritual, very dynamic union in the very depths of our being with the Holy Spirit of God himself. This is the life of God and the soul of the man in Romans chapter 6. And we find that sin's dominion then has been broken because of the miracle of the new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Going into chapter 7, we find that we are saved by God alone, by grace alone, not by law keeping, but by God himself. The second half of chapter 7 then is Paul the Apostle. He sort of opens up his coat, as it were, and shares personal things from his life. Things that we need to know immediately following chapter 6, because we're told the dominion of sin has been shattered 
warned not to dabble with sin at the end of chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, Paul shows us that you can be as spiritual as a man can be. You're still going to battle sin. Why? Anybody know why? Because we are still in the body. So we looked at that in detail. The conflict is continued. And that conflict, if you're a Christian today, you know that conflict. It can be so agonizing. It can be so depressing. Because here in the very depths of your being, you long to please God. And that begins the moment you're born again. With all your heart, you would love to fulfill every single thing you find on the pages of the Bible and rise right up on into perfection and live unbroken in communion with the Lord. But you don't. You end up sinning. You end up far from God at times. You end up on your face, as it were, with a mouthful of sin that's turned into gravel, as the Bible talks about. And so this great struggle, it's intense. It's real. Coming out of that, we come right into the words of Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. And what great words they are. You understand why this is one of the most loved chapters in all the Bible. William Newell again says, There is scarcely a passage in the New Testament that is more delightful reading to the spiritual Christian than the eighths of Romans. Even when it's verses, and it contains several difficult verses, are not fully understood, there is nevertheless a wonderful charm about the chapter. There is an atmosphere of blessing running all through it. It is my intention here, if you have never been acquainted with Romans 8, that by the time we are done studying it, you will have fallen in love with Jesus Christ, the God of Romans 8. And you will have found the richness that is here for you to bless your soul, to delight your soul, to comfort your soul, and to bring confidence to your soul in your relationship with the Lord. So many things are brought together in Romans chapter 8. But for today, we're going to look at verse 1. And that is simply one statement. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I want to talk about two things. The reality of our freedom that is there in that statement and the foundation of our freedom. To begin with, the reality of our freedom. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the fact of our no condemnation status. Now, right here, we are talking about kingdom realities. The things we're looking at right here, right now, are so far from the everyday mundane thoughts we think about out there on the job, watching television, looking at a movie. These things are so far from what's right here on the pages of the Bible in front of us. These are intensely spiritual things. These are the greatest realities in all of life, and it's going to take us all of eternity to mine out and enjoy all that is here. What does it mean, this no condemnation status? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It is an absolute statement. When you see that word, no, there is no condemnation. The Greek word translated no is the term oikete. It is the strongest possible term that Paul could have reached for in the Greek language. It is an emphatic, negative adverb of time. And it carries the idea of complete cessation. No condemnation. It's literally this. And I want to get this into your brain. And I want to screw it down deep in there and screw it down tight. It means this. No condemnation. 
Not now, not ever. Not now, not ever. It is, in fact, absolute. Your no condemnation status that you have in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. The word condemnation comes from the Greek word katakrima. And it, it is also a very strong word. It is only used in Romans in chapter 5 and right here in the Bible. Very, very, very strong word. Katakrima. And although it relates to the sentencing for a crime, the main focus of the word is the punishment for the crime. The punishment. Thus, what we are being told here is that we are never going to have to face the punishment that we deserve for our sin. You understand them flowing out of Romans 7, how sweet this is. Because Romans 7 deals with all these practical aspects of the torment of our sin. And here we come to read, there is no condemnation. So the idea then again is that it's not so much the verdict that it's looking at as the penalty that the verdict demands. Now what's the penalty for sin in the Bible? Death. The wages of sin is death. Is that physical death? No. That's part of the process. But really the wages of sin is death. That is Total alienation from God in this life, if that wasn't bad enough, total alienation from God forever, that's the punishment for sin. Wow. So to read in my Bible, to see Paul announcing this incredible news that there will be no condemnation, there will be no punishment for my sin, no sin that I've ever committed, I will not be punished for any sin I've committed to this point or will commit today or tomorrow. No condemnation, not now, not ever. This is good news. This is the kind of truth I read on the pages of the Bible, and I open my heart, and I still myself before the Lord, and let it just soak in. Let it soak in. In. Because it isn't the kind of thing where you read it and you go, mm, yeah, that's really wonderful. Uh-huh. What else are we going to talk about today? This is the kind of thing you, th- you will think about from now until the day you die. And listen to this, on the day that you do die, this is going to give you the peace to die well. To die in peace before the Lord. The fact of our no condemnation status. The connections of our no condemnation status, I've hinted at it already It flows right out of chapter 7. And I'm so thankful to God for that. Because in chapter 7, Paul discloses that no matter how close you are to the Lord, no matter how spiritual you are, you're going to struggle with sin. That struggle brings frustration. And perhaps worse than the frustration is that the struggle brings paranoia, fear. I wonder if you struggle with your sin And you, even if you're a Christian, you struggle with some new sin that wasn't a problem before you were a Christian. And maybe it's a worse sin than some sin you committed before you were a Christian. You begin to struggle in this way, and now there's fear that comes out of that. There is guilt that comes out of that. And there is then paranoia. What's the paranoia? The paranoia is that, wow, look at how I am. Now, I know I've come to Christ, and I know I believe in the Lord, but... Wow, if people only knew how bad I am, they would flee from me. 
I wouldn't have any friends at all. If they really got to know me, they would flee from me immediately. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. So that paranoia then is, what, the Lord knows what everybody doesn't know. What if he just gets so fed up with me and all of this that he just can't stand it anymore and he decides, you know what? Guilty! The verdict is, you're out. The verdict is, you're going to get everything you ever deserved before you became a Christian. You're going to get it all and more because you know so much. You know, so you get this paranoia and the devil who's very good at feeding that paranoia, jumping on your back and shoving you. He'll shove you into sin and then he'll kick you when you're down after you've fallen into it. The devil feeds that paranoia. So you come to this and the connection of our no condemnation status becomes absolutely critical to alleviate that fear, to actually take it away. To take it away. You mean that in spite of this struggle that I have, I am in a position before God of no condemnation, not now, not ever? Yes, that is exactly right. That is the good news. And he starts the greatest chapter in the Bible with those words. It is, in fact, the foundation of the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's, it's freedom from the paranoia. Freedom for what? To go on and enjoy my fellowship with God in spite of my struggles. So that when I do struggle, I thank God that Jesus Christ died for me and I'm not condemned before him. He understands my struggle. He was here on earth as a man. He went through a lot of these struggles. He never gave in like I do. But he understands the velocity, the power, how vicious it can be. And so you understand the connection to Romans 7. Another thing then that flows out of this very practically as it relates to Romans 7 is that when you go through these struggles with your own weaknesses, you fall into sin, you fall in again, you fall in again and again, you come back before the throne of God, oh God forgive me, oh God forgive me. When you go through that syndrome, especially with a besetting sin, what then flows out of that is self-condemnation. We're talking here about no condemnation in, term, in the largest possible sense, eternal punishment. To just sidestep that for a moment, practically speaking, we experience as Christians self-condemnation. In other words, we expected better of ourselves. In other words, I've been a Christian all this time. You would think I would do better. You know, and you have these dialogues with yourself, and then you end up condemning yourself for not doing better. I should be doing better. I should have been holier. And now you're shooting on yourself. You understand? And that is condemnation. And it's horrible, isn't it? It can just rob you of all the delights of the Christian life. To then understand no condemnation before my God, not now, not ever, frees me from self-condemnation, which can just basically eat you up and turn you into something that you don't want to be. So again, we're talking about the freedom that comes to us. This is the ultimate tonic for the genuine and real struggles of Romans 7. And I thank God for it here. He says there is now 
talking about our experience and how it relates now. It's interesting, in chapter 7, there are 30 occurrences of the word I, all about that internal struggle. In chapter 8, you don't find that. You find instead 20 references to the Holy Spirit and to His power. So that coming into this chapter, you continue to understand and explore and marvel at all that God has really done for you in your salvation. Let me share with you the words of Charles Spurgeon at this point. He says, you are well aware, dear friends, that the division into chapters has only been made for convenience sake in our Bibles. It is not a matter of inspired arrangement. I may add that it has been clumsily made, and not with careful thoughtfulness, but as roughly as if a woodman had taken an axe and chopped the book to pieces in a hurry. It is very unfortunate that the axe dropped down just here, so as to divide a passage which ought to have been kept entire. We once heard a friend say, I have gotten out of the seventh of Romans, and I'm on into eight. Spurgeon stops right there in his sermon and he shouts, Nonsense! He says, Nonsense! There is no getting out of one into the other, for they are in fact one. The field is not divided by hedge or ditch. I thank God with all my heart that since my conversion, I have never known what it is to be out of the seventh of Romans, nor out of the eighth either. The whole passage has been solid truth to my experience. I have struggled against inward sin and rejoiced in complete justification at the same time. Our apostle, he goes on to say, our apostle having said, so then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, goes on to say without a break, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The fact is that believers are in a state of conflict, but not in a state of condemnation. And that at the very time when the conflict is hottest, the believer is still justified. When the believer has to do his utmost even to hold his ground, when he feels that he cannot advance an inch without fighting for it, when he has to cry out an agony of his spirit because of the vehemence of temptation, he may still lay hold his hand upon the word of God and say, and yet there is no condemnation to me for I am in Christ Jesus. End quote great words. The man who never strives against sin that dwells in him, who is not conscious of any sin to strive against, that man is the one who needs to question whether he knows anything at all about a spiritual life. He is the one who has no inward pain and may well suspect that he is abiding in death. See, there are always those that we meet who say, well, I'm not a sinner. You know, you Christians, you need something. You need that crutch, of course, and Jesus is fine for you because you need that crutch. But I'm not like you. I'm not a big sinner like you. You see, the people that don't feel the struggle of Romans 7 are dead. They're spiritually dead. That's why they don't feel it. For those people, you can't read, there is now no condemnation. In fact, you, can, you would rather read, there is therefore only condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. It's the one who goes through the struggle. It's the person who feels the pain of battling sin within, who with confidence can declare, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what this is all about. If your soul sighs for holiness, 
And your sign is steady. You long for God. It proves that you are in Jesus Christ. And there is now no condemnation for you. Hear these words today. Let these sayings sink deep down into your ears and into your soul. This then is the immediate connection back to Romans 7. The connection here, if you look at Romans 8, 1 again, there is there now for no condemnation. And seeing it in the biggest possible sense of eternal punishment, exile from God, and all that that includes. You come here and you realize there are connections here then in this statement to everything that has been taught in Romans so far. Everything. And that's why I very quickly took you back to chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all the way up to here. Notice how this chapter opens. There is therefore, in light of all we've seen, there is therefore no condemnation. You notice how it closes. There is no separation. The chapter opens with no condemnation and it closes with no separation. There's no condemnation for you today, child of God. Not now, not ever. And there is no separation for you today from your Lord Jesus Christ. Not now, not ever. If you're truly born again, you're God's child. If you are his own, he will keep you forever. No condemnation, no separation. And everything in between. And that's going to take us actually many messages. I will probably spend more time in this chapter and do more messages in this chapter than any other chapter in the Bible. Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 30. I don't know. We're going to take as long as we need to take. We'll go as fast as we can, but we'll go as slow as we need to. How's that? Fast as we can, but as slow as we need to. That's going to be really slow, by the way. Today is just a simple sweep over the very first statement here to get us ready to go, get us all squared away. So here is freedom from eternal condemnation. We have the fact of our no condemnation status. We have the connections of our no condemnation status. And we don't want to understand them because this is such a huge truth that this then does not eliminate the reality of God's discipline in my life. I'm never going to see eternal punishment for my sin. But that doesn't mean that God isn't going to practically discipline me right now, here and now, in this life. We want to hold that truth in tension with what we're looking at here. See, the Bible is very clear in Hebrews chapter 12, and we studied it in depth in our Hebrews study, that for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And if you don't have that activity of God in your life, the Bible says that is a sign that you don't know him. So to rejoice in the truth of our no condemnation status does not sever the connection of discipline with our God. And further, it does not then basically let us off the hook of any accountability to God. In other words, you are in a relationship with the Lord and you're going to reap what you sow. No condemnation, not now, not ever. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to reap what I sow. The Bible's very clear on that. We're getting some balance here. In Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes and he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
And so we understand these things. This is the reality of our freedom, our no condemnation before the Lord. The foundation of our freedom, what a blessed thought, is the satisfaction of the cross of Jesus Christ as it relates to God the Father. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he completely satisfied every demand of God's holy law. So the foundation of this no condemnation status is the fact that Jesus Christ paid in full the payment for your sin. It is amazing to me that God did not simply say, well, you know, they're kind of cute, those little creatures I made, those little, those little human beings, you know, and they're, they're, they're really naughty, they're really bad, but they're sort of cute. I'll just sort of wave the issue of my holiness and let it go and take them all to heaven after all. That's not the way it worked out because it couldn't work out that way. There was no other way than for God to send his son to die in your place and my place on the cross for my sins. And the good news today is that Jesus Christ, in dying for my sins and dying for your sins, paid the full price. There was nothing left undone, unpaid when he was done. He said, it is finished, paid in full. Tetelestai is the Greek that he used there, paid in full. So that when you come to Jesus Christ and you receive forgiveness, it is total forgiveness, total forgiveness, not partial, but total forgiveness. And that is the heart and soul of the gospel. Jesus Christ completely, permanently paid the debt of my sin. I'll tell you something, I can't hear that too often. I like saying it right now. I hope you like hearing it right now. I think if you're a Christian, your heart just goes, oh, yes, yes, yes. Preach on, brother. Say it again. I will say it again. The heart and soul of the gospel is that Jesus Christ completely, permanently paid the debt of sin. So anybody who comes to him and asks for forgiveness, and that's you today, you, the chief of sinners, you ask for forgiveness. You come to believe on him. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you paid the price. Save me, soul. He, save me, Lord. He saves you utterly. He saves you utterly. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by one offering, he, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified by his blood. By one offering. It is amazing that Jesus Christ died for me, he died in my place, and he forgives me of all my sin, but he doesn't leave it at that. He goes beyond that, and I'm told in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 that he adds to that all these things in heavenly places that I'm now a joint heir with him. All that he inherits with the Father going back into heaven after rising from the dead from the cross, he's going to share with me. He doesn't just forgive my sins and allow me in. Like, I forgive you, but don't come around too much. You know, I'm going to give you a, a little cottage. No mansion for you. You are like really bad. I forgive you. I'm going to let you in my heaven, but don't dirty it up. You know, stay over there in your cottage. I'm going to keep you confined. No, rather, he says, for those that overcome, you will sit down with me in my throne. I don't really understand the fullness of that. I can't. But when I'm there, I will. I become a joint heir with him. He doesn't just forgive. He forgives. He adopts. He makes me his own. I'm his child. He becomes my father. Then he gives me all that he inherits. It's going to take us forever, forever, 
to understand and experience all of that. The satisfaction of Jesus Christ's substitute dying in your place on the cross is complete. God is completely satisfied as it relates to the sin issue in your life. Think of that. Perhaps if you understand it, wrap your mind and heart around it, you begin to settle into more peace before the Lord and your relationship with him. It's our position in him. You notice the text says there is no condemnation for those who are, here it is, in Christ. It's because I'm in Christ. So that those are the ones who receive the no condemnation status. I'd like you to go back now. Again, Romans chapter 1. I want to just read a few verses with you. Work our way back to this place again. It's all about being in Christ. And you ask yourself today, are you in Christ? Are these things resonating in your soul because you're in him? If so, then this no condemnation status is for you. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 17, For therein the righteousness of who? God. When you become born again, when the Lord forgives you, He forgives you, but then He gives you something. He gives you his own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God himself that is given to you in Christ. Understand the fullness of his work on the cross that he could take your sin from you onto himself, pay the price, but then give you back in exchange his righteousness, the very righteousness of God. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just will live by faith. Then verse 24 of Romans 3. Look there. Something about the word of God, reading it, letting it wash over your soul. It washes you. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where are you today? You're not just in church. If you're born again, you are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 5.1, again, look there. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told in the next verse, we stand in Christ, in Christ. We stand in grace. Our standing is in grace because we're in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. How long are you going to stand in grace? You stand in grace because you're in Christ. So how long are you going to stand in grace? As long as he lives. As long as Jesus lives, as long as Jesus lives, you're safe, secure, utterly secure. How long is Jesus Christ going to live? Forever. So I'm going to stand in grace because I'm in Christ and he's going to live forever. I'm going to stand in grace forever. So then go to Romans 8.31. Working through all these different issues, you get to Romans 8.31 and Paul asks rhetorically, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is, in fact, God who justifies. Verse 34, who is he who, see the word, condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
Brethren, if the highest tribunal in the universe justifies us, who could ever declare us guilty? That's Paul's point. It is extremely important to realize that the deliverance from condemnation is not based in the least measure on any performance on your part, but entirely on his cross and his substitution for you. John declares this truth throughout his gospel, throughout his epistles. And the glorious thing then is this, having a no condemnation status realizing that I'm never going to be punished for my sins. I will stand before the Lord and he will reward me. You say, well, what about, you know, that struggle in Romans 7? How does that work out on a day-by-day basis? If If I struggle with sin, how does that work out? Well, built into this no condemnation status is the reality that God provides full, complete cleansing for you on a daily basis. God himself makes it all work, if I could put it that way. Turn in your Bible to 1 John 1, 9. I'll pull this all together for now. 1 John 1, 9. Part of my no condemnation status is that he provides full cleansing for me. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Do you know what the word propitiation means? Satisfaction. Satisfaction. He himself has satisfied the Father as it relates to my sin issue. He himself is the satisfaction. When I sin, the Father sees me in Christ. And he's satisfied with what Christ has done. God knows that in the deepest part of my heart, I long to serve him utterly, and I long to get out of this body and never sin again. He knows that. And so here is the cleansing for me. Here is my standing in him. And he himself, 1 John 2, 2, is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And this is why we carry forth the good news of the gospel. This is why we don't receive forgiveness and and receive salvation and keep it to ourselves like little walking cul-de-sacs. We are to go out and be the light of the world. We are to go out and find somebody who will listen to the things we are studying today and share them. For those that live in paranoia, for those that live in fear, we're to go and bring them the gospel and bring them the truth that makes them free. You know, some people feel like you tell people they're not condemned, not now, not ever, and they're going to go wild with that. They're going to just start sinning like crazy. Really? Is that how it really works? I don't think so. I believe my Bible testifies otherwise. I believe it testifies to the opposite. It is those who believe they're condemned. It is those who believe they're going to heaven that sin more than anybody else. Because they feel like, well, you know, if, I'm, if that's what's going to happen, I might as well make it all worth it. And set it up. Because the payment is high. It's those who believe they're condemned. Those are the ones that sin more. That is the way it goes. 
Those who come to understand what God has done for them and made them free, those are the ones who don't want to sin at all anymore, but rather just go on in fellowship with God. There is something about the unconverted heart and the bent towards sin that no matter what it is, you know, I want this sin, oh, I'm going to burn in hell for it, woo, well, then I might as well get all this sin I can. You know what I read about yesterday? I read about a mouse who crawled into a trap and the trap shut on his tail and even though he was now caught in the trap, he kept eating the cheese. <laughs> I'm going to die. So what? It's a high price to pay for this good cheese. <laughs> if you believe you're condemned, you're only going to sin more. When you come to understand there's no condemnation, not now, not ever, you're going to get on your knees. And you're going to say, God, I am the worst of sinners. I deserve hell. I deserve exile from your presence. And you have been so good to me. You have forgiven me. You have blessed me. I'll never be punished for my sins. Lord, now lead me, guide me. I want to live for you because you died for me. And that's the born-again Christian. That's the life that we live. I want to leave you for today with the words of Martin Luther. They blessed my soul. I think they'll bless you. Martin Luther said so very long ago, It is impossible for a man to be a Christian without having Christ. And if he has Christ, he has at the same time all that is in Christ. What gives peace to the conscience is that by faith our sins are no more ours, but Christ's upon whom God has laid them all, and that on the other hand, all Christ's righteousness is now ours, to whom God has given it. Christ lays his hand upon us, and we are healed. He casts his mantle upon us, and we are clothed. For he is the glorious Savior, blessed forever. Praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you today that you are so very good to us. We thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to grow into the truth we have looked at here today, that we might see how much you have truly done for us, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude. And we do thank you now, Lord. We do bless you and praise you. Thank you, Lord, that because of Jesus, we will never have to face the penalty for our sins, paid in full. But rather, we face a bright and glorious future in heaven with you, in fellowship unbroken, in the light of the glory of God, in the Father's house. How we thank you, Lord, for our great salvation. How we bless you and praise you this day. Lord, for any here today that do not know you, we ask you, Lord, as your people, we unite our hearts and pray, work your saving work and bring anyone listening to this message right now to your throne of grace and save them. May this be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.